Hello and welcome to Start Your Week for Monday the 1st of February 2021. I'm Andrew Harrison and here with me to set out what might happen in the next seven days, I've got our regular panellist Yasmin Sahan of The Atlantic Magazine. Good morning, Yasmin. How are you today? Good morning. Well, January is over, so I'm thrilled. That was the longest month ever. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, dry January ends right now. Open the drinks cupboard, pinch and a punch. This prediction thing is tricky, isn't it? I don't think any of us had coup in Myanmar on our list of things to watch, but here we are. What's happening? What can we say about this? Yeah, I certainly um, wasn't planning for it. But yeah, basically, the, the story is still developing. But what appeared to happen, I guess, overnight for us, is that Myanmar's military, which it should be said, ruled the country for, I think, about half a century um, before the country's transition to democracy in 2010, basically detained many of the country's leaders, including its civilian leader, um, Aung San Suu Kyi, and and other kind of members of her National League for Democracy Party. Um, And they've effectively seemed to have put in place a state of emergency that is going to last for a year. And that's the extent to which we know. I mean, we also know that effectively the, the military's reason for doing this is that they took issue with the election that Myanmar had in November. They've effectively said that um, it, it was rigged, I think, is my understanding. We've heard that before mm-hmm. <laughs> with regard to other November elections. So, but yeah, this is, um, but obviously this one has kind of ended in a very different way. So yeah, the, the situation is still developing. We don't really know what's happened. I think even the country is experiencing a lot of internet shortages at the moment. So it's kind of even hard to gauge to what extent we're going to be able to hear what's happening there as well. Joe Biden's press secretary, Jemp Psaki, says the US will take action if the coup is not reversed. Uh, you can't actually see the Trump administration doing that, could you? If he, if he was still there, where is Myanmar would be the response. Yeah, it'll be, it will be interesting to see what Biden does should the US decide to do anything, because I think it's really going to signal, you know, is the US going to be the country that, you know, stands up to defend democracy again? Um, you know, it probably wouldn't be folks in Myanmar who are counting on this. I know in Belarus, this is something that opposition leaders there are hoping for, that, oh, this is going to be an administration that, you know, doesn't just kind of turn a blind eye to these kind of things, that it'll actually stand up and say something. What that is uh, remains to be seen. At home today, Monday, is the first anniversary of the first ever UK case of COVID uh, being diagnosed or noted. But there is news that all eligible care home residents have been offered the vaccine. The news on vaccines is undoubtedly good. 600,000 people were vaccinated on Saturday. Cases are trending downwards, deaths less so. But they are heading downwards. What are we expecting this week? I imagine this week is is going to be a lot of reflection. I mean, it's just kind of hard to imagine a year ago. I mean, I remember still being out in crowded pubs a year ago. So to think that we kind of got the notification then and now fast forward a year later, it's 100,000 deaths and that, that's here in the UK and that's just of more than 2 million worldwide is kind of astounding. But yeah, the vaccination news is good and it looks like, I mean, generally that they're, that Britain and other countries, the US as well, are, are going to try to ramp those up more. So I think we're just going to see a case where hopefully by the end of this month, at least, that we'll have hopefully most vulnerable adult populations covered. Do we expect that the way that the vaccination has been going, which is undoubtedly, you know, very well uh, for once, do we expect this to increase pressure on unlocking? Because the downward trend on cases, the downward trend on deaths shows that the lockdown has worked. The lockdown deniers have been mm. rather confounded. But now that it is working, are we going to expect to see more calls for faster reopening of schools and workplaces and so on this week, do you think? 
I, I, th- I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't be surprised if that happened. I mean, I think if, you know, you recall back to when we were put in lockdown the first time and then the second, th- the main argument was that there was pressure on the NHS and that we needed to relieve that pressure. If we get to a point where most of the vulnerable population are vaccinated and hospitalizations start to go down, then you could see folks making an argument where they say, look, you know, we need to start reopening again. And, you know, the younger people will be able to handle this better anyway. I don't know if this week that's necessarily still a convincing argument. I think we probably, at least I would imagine, would want to see a, a bit more encouraging numbers. But absolutely, I wouldn't be surprised if certainly this month and next month you start to hear more clamoring about opening up a bit more again. Also, another thing that's happening this week on this front, the Health Committee will be grilling Dido Harding. And I guess we'll all be asking whatever happened to Test and Trace, which seems to have been completely <laughs> buried in the news about vaccination. She has very much been the, the, the target for criticism of the government's cronyism, criticism of the government's inefficiency. That should probably be quite interesting, I would have thought. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you kind of, I, I was in, I walked into a cafe just to get a takeaway coffee the other day and I saw the track and trace little kind of thing that you scan on your phone. And I was like, oh, I forgot about that. Like yeah. that's, you know, is, is that a thing that we only do when the numbers just aren't so crazy that there no longer seems a point? Because um, you just kind of assume that if it's one in 20 people in London that everyone around yeah. you probably has it anyway. Yeah, who remembers track it, test and trace? It was like, you know, the ice bucket challenge or something from, from years ago. What are we expecting from the fallout from the the EU route at the weekend? The EU's aborted decision to activate Article 16, limit vaccine imports across the border to Ireland, which they reversed very quickly under pressure from Ireland, which kind of indicates that EU countries are quite sovereign, maybe. What are we expecting from the fallout on that? I mean, that was a really astounding story um, to kind of end the week on. But yeah, I mean, I think we saw just by how quickly the EU reversed course that they are very much aware of how optically that looks incredibly bad. And, and it seems like this is one of the rare occasions where they've united Britons on both sides of the Brexit debate, not to mention the island of Ireland yes. um, in, in terms of, of an issue. I mean, you know, I think obviously... It, you recall to a year ago when all of this was starting and the global narrative was like, we need to work together to, to, to combat this virus, that this is something we can only get through together. And then the vaccines come around and you're starting to sort of see that narrative shred a little bit. You know, I think what we saw over the weekend with the EU and AstraZeneca and with Britain to an extent was basically this, you know, vaccine nationalism just kind of showing its ugly face. Um, people are very rightly and understandably wanting and by people, I mean governments, um, are very rightly and understandably want to get doses for their populations to protect them. But um, you're also seeing pe- governments act in kind of silly ways when, you know, issues happen, like in the case of AstraZeneca, having manufacturing um, issues, that means it can't make keep all of the promises it's made. Uh, the EU's failure to, to get its vaccine rollout sorted has, has been has been an embarrassment both uh, both within the EU and to us. You know, they're, they're letting us remain us down. This is this is not good. <laughs> EU countries are getting only a quarter of the 100 million AstraZeneca doses that they were expected. Does the EU have any option now that the kind of the idea of controlling the borders has, has gone? Uh, does, it have, does it have any option but to refocus its arguments against AstraZeneca and to to make it what it probably should have been in the first place, which is an argument between? the EU and the companies that are supposed to provide these vaccines. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because you kind of have to put everything in context because, yes, it's true, the EU is 
far behind in terms of vaccinations per capita when it comes to countries like Israel and the UAE and the UK and the US. But the EU is also really far ahead of more than 100 other countries that haven't even started vaccinating at all. And that includes the world's 29 poorest countries, of which only one of them, Guinea, has actually started vaccinating. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is tricky. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we see more manufacturing hiccups like this in the future, but we're going to see more vaccines come online. I mean, there's good or positive phase three trial results from Novavax and Johnson & Johnson. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to reserve doses, the EU, like wealthy governments around the world, are actually in a pretty good place. In the US, one of Joe Biden's transition advisors on COVID has warned uh, America that the British strain could become the most prevalent and dangerous strain in the United States. That hurricane is coming, uh, Biden's been told. Can we expect tight travel restrictions to the US? I mean, is this, are we, uh, you know, we may have a great vaccine story at home, but are we going to become synonymous with the next wave of the, and the next strain, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's certainly no indication that the Biden administration is kind of going to let up on anything that they can do to reduce the numbers at home. Um, I know towards the end of the Trump administration, they had talked about lifting the ban on European and and British travelers. um, And that was quickly um, dismissed by the Biden administration. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think the British variant is obviously a concern, but I think even more broadly, um, a point that I've seen made by by a couple of um, public health experts um, in, in the last week was that, you know, these variants are kind of a warning about why we need to really think critically about kind of global equitable distribution, because variants are what happens when viruses are allowed to go, like the virus is allowed to be out of control anywhere. So the British strain is a concern right now. The Brazilian one is a concern. The South African one is a concern. Um, But, you know, if we allow the virus to be endemic anywhere in the world, we're going to have these other variants that could potentially emerge that make us vulnerable again. So that that was kind of going off the original question. But yeah, I mean, I I think it is a concern. And I've kind of been waiting with bated breath a bit because I hadn't heard much about the British variant back home. But yeah, it is a bit worse because I mean, the Things are starting to look up back home, I and mean, I think hospitalizations are down, and hopefully deaths will follow. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the notion that you know the, the British variant hasn't been introduced properly yet is a bit concerning. Sticking with the United States, Donald Trump has a new legal team for his impeachment trial after his former lawyers quit en masse uh, last week. What does it What does it mean when your entire team quits? It's probably not not very good. Not a lot of um, yeah, not a lot of confidence. Um, it, it is kind of a big deal, especially since you know the the trial starts next week. So the fact that this is all happening now is a bit concerning. But as I understand it, and I think CNN was the first to report it, um, was effectively that the the former president now. Um, took issue with the lawyer's legal strategy. Um, He wants to very much apparently make it about the election being stolen from him and mass fraud. Whereas I think the, the approach that his former lawyers want to take, and it appears his current lawyers want to take as well, is the notion that it is unconstitutional to convict a former president. Um, We'll see if that bears out. But um, I think as we've seen from the Senate, it seems pretty unlikely at this point that they're going to convict but the trial will go on in any yeah. case, so, so we'll see what happens. I love your delicate uh, phrase in there. The president took issue. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine you know, Trump taking issue. The new lawyers are an interesting pair. Uh, David Schoen represented Roger Stone mm. without success, and Bruce Castor has been attacked for standing in the way of reformers to help victims of sexually abusive priests. So uh, is, is Trump getting the best of the best here, do you think? 
the thing is, it, this is one of the, I mean, unlike the first impeachment trial, I just can't imagine many lawyers wanting to touch this with a six foot pole. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it just coming off of, of what spurred the, the second impeachment and, and the fact that again, he's, he's out of office. And I think a lot of people would kind of like to just, you know, turn away and, and, and forget that this has happened. Well, some people anyway, but no, but he, he has found people to represent him. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see there. He's not totally without hope. You mentioned that it's unlikely uh, that, that you think the Democrats will get the 17 Repu- Republican votes they need to convict Trump. Are attitudes hardening? As you know, January the 6th invasion of the Capitol just been filed as uh, one of those things in history that we don't really need to think about now. Yeah, I think I think there's just a deep desire to move on. And there's this sort of argument that's happening on on the right, which is effectively that if Biden was really committed to bipartisanship, that he wouldn't be you know, that, that he would be opposing this sort of thing. But, you know, I mean, we all remember just how big of a moment that was. There needs to be some accountability for this. I think whether or not the Senate is going to impeach, I think that trial kind of has to, to stand and to happen. And, you know, we need to really just engage with what happened so that hopefully it never does again. Regarding that attack on the Capitol, something absolutely astonishing surfaced over the weekend. It was a memo from Acting Defence Secretary Christopher Miller ordering the National Guard not to be issued with weapons, not to interact with protesters and not to seek support from other agencies during this protest. It's like, you know, he tied their hands. I mean, it's being discussed in terms of literally was the attack an inside job? What what do you think about this? You saw the memo. Yeah, I I briefly looked at it. And I mean, you know, I I think what it sort of, what it drilled down to me is, you know, I don't know necessarily about like kind of inside job in the sense of orchestrating, but we do know that the president encouraged and promoted this. I mean, there was merch for this event. So, you know, it was, it was pretty uh, official. And and I think, you know, when I saw the sort of all, all the ways that the authorities were kind of unauthorized to, to do certain things, it just kind of reminded me back of the summer and the, the protests with Black Lives Matter movement and just the, how different that response was. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that there should be violent responses by authorities. I think what we saw over the summer was incredibly terrible. Um, obviously shouldn't have you know, happened again, but I think it's, it's just kind of really telling um, who you know, I think this particular administration thought was worth responding to and who wasn't. So yeah, I mean, I think it kind of tells you what we already knew, which was that you know, tr- the president supported and actively encouraged this. And even if he came back the next day and said, oh, that's really terrible. You should go home. I mean, his first message to to the people who did it was, we love you. This is, you know, you'll remember this day forever. A handful of other stories that got to come up uh, in the course of this week. Former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre has been floated as the head of Ofcom, which appears to be trolling by appointment and is going to enrage anybody to the left of, uh, well, Paul Dacre. Yasmin, do you think this indicates where the government wants to go once COVID is, in quotes, done? You know, that They will try to pivot to those issues where they can campaign more than govern and, uh, you know, drive home a, a, a cultural position on things. Yeah, I mean, well, when COVID is done, it's, it's hard to imagine when, exactly, when that will yeah. actually be but but yeah I mean I, th- I think you know everything that I mean I think it just kind of says it all who who the person is this is clearly a figure that is kind of seems to me I guess what would you all call it a marmite person figure um depending on yeah. your persuasion um but yeah just, well, lots of people like marmite <laughs> oh that's true uh, someone yeah. as an American who's tried it, I, I can't say that I do but yeah you know I, I think this will kind of go back to sort of the classic kind of culture war and I think the BBC has always been um kind of you know a uh, 
a thing to sort of play that off of. Um, but, but I think it'll also bring up, you know, a, a bunch of other conversations like why is this particular individual going to be in charge of, of issues that have nothing to do with the right or the left in reporting, such as uh, broadband. I, th- I think it will be interesting to see his um, sort of his take and stance when it comes to social media companies and regulation there, because that may well mm. be an issue where people actually agree on something. Well, I think I, I think it's 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 pretty clear that a large part of uh, the reason he, he's in the frame is because he really loathes Facebook and Google, uh, mm. particularly in the way that they've eat, eaten uh, newspapers' lunch in terms of advertising. The brief supposedly is to get at the BBC to really kind of focus on the BBC, but we've got a huge shift in media coming over the next year. You've got the two right-wing uh, news channels supposedly launching Andrew Neil's GBTV, Murdoch's British Fox, and if Dacre is at the head of Ofcom. I mean, Lord, when he was in, when Dacre was in the frame for it over the summer, Lord Adonis said that Dacre demonstrably doesn't believe in impartiality and statutorily regulated media, and GBTV and and the Murdoch Channel will test of form of regulation. Uh, and I, personally, I can't imagine anybody worse to, to be in charge of this. But it, it does seem to be purely tactical to you know, keep the Liberals on the back foot by shocking them. But there's going to be a DCMS question session in Parliament on Thursday, uh, by which time. Dacre may well be a more realistic uh, possibility. So so that could be interesting one to keep an eye on. A handful of other things, the ongoing Navalny protests in Russia, what do you think is going to happen there? Yeah, so I, I know that the this was the second weekend of protests, but I, I believe there are potentially more protests planned because his sentence is expected to be announced on Tuesday. Thousands of more people were um, were arrested over the weekend. Um, I, th- yeah, I think this is obviously a, a big moment um, and not just for, for obviously for people who support Navalny, but I, I think for people who just want to voice their opposition more generally in Russia. Um, so, so it'll be interesting to, to see how the government responds to it. If choose, if, you know, I think if Navalny comes off with a shorter sentence than was expected, the protesters will have ultimately been vindicated because, you know, as, as I saw a lot of commentators note, one of their main goals principally was to make sure that Navalny didn't get a big sentence. If, if he does, however, then obviously this is clearly, you know, the Kremlin trying to, to stand up to the protesters and, and not make itself appear to be swayed by anything. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely an important, I think, protest story at the start of the year to watch. There's a handful of other things uh, for your diary. There's a Labour debate in the Commons on the on the cladding crisis post-Grenfell coming up this week. Uh, the Treasury Committee's budget preview is going to preview the misery ahead for what's going to be a pretty straightened and tightened economic year. And the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee is going to be looking at English devolution, uh, something we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, what happens to England if and when the United Kingdom breaks up. So these are all things that are going to be moving closer to the centre of the agenda in the course of the week. But Yasmin Sahan, thanks for getting up so early uh, to start your week for the listeners. Thanks for having me. It always, always a pleasure. Remember, we're back tomorrow with the weekly panel show. There's new dailies every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we hope you enjoyed our surprise weekend special with Nick Cohen of The Observer talking to Laura Spinney, author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World, and what that book can tell us about COVID. Uh, if you missed it, have a listen. It's really good. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>